Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecallendershow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Before we went to the break, I'd, I'd mentioned about some of the stuff that, that parents are doing now. Um, and it, it is rather bizarre, some of the things that they are doing. And, and you know, having said that, <laughs> this is this is an observation by Vinay Prasad's observation. He said, everywhere I go, you can get it. He has, he has a post about parenting and stuff. And he said, everywhere I go, life has returned to normal. Most people acknowledge that school closure was an error and that restrictions placed on the lives of children served no purpose. They all got COVID anyway. It's not clear the vaccine works in kids in any meaningful way. Moreover, restricting kids did not significantly slow the spread for anyone else. The best evidence suggests no change in spread or a marginal change in spread. It was a mistake to not recognize the age of gradient of the virus. And approximately every restriction placed on healthy people was wrong. Yet it's 2023, or at least the end of it, a few days left, so to speak. Um, and, And yet, and yet, we continue to put kids in masks. I mean, you see them every now and then. You see them in airports. You see them in sometimes in stores. You see these parents that are masking their kids out. You see them at the playground, at school. You see them in grocery stores. Sometimes the kids are wearing a ridiculous counterfeit uh, of a N95 mask. Um, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Sometimes the kids are wearing N95, sometimes a plastic flow mask, often a flimsy surgical mask. You see way more of the kids in liberal enclaves like San Francisco, Chicago, Portland. And you don't see them in like Miami. In fact, I was in Miami not too long ago. Hardly ever saw them. Didn't see them in Nashville much. Uh, It's no secret research has shown that masking has much more to do with politics than biology, especially in 2023. These aren't children undergoing chemotherapy on permanent immunosuppression or otherwise vulnerable. Uh, They're not vulnerable to this. It's, It's hard to know which conditions make someone more vulnerable, by the way, as the virus is much more like a cold and hospital stats are very flawed. Mostly they are kids of parents who are still very afraid. They're afraid of the boogeyman of long COVID. I feel bad for these kids, the author writes, and I do too. By the way, when I see kids in masks, I feel bad for them. I feel bad that that they're being taught something that is untrue. How many more years will their parents make them wear masks? I've seen 18-month-old kids wearing masks on an airplane for for seven hours. How is that fair to a kid? How is that remotely fair to the kid? At a minimum, I think the same public health authorities who scared people into wearing masks should actively advise parents to take the mask off their kids. Parents, of course, have the right to parent poorly, but at some point, this is going to be a bigger issue. I don't think it's fair for parents to prevent their kid from showing their face for how many years? Five more years? Ten more years till they go to college? And those kids, think about the damage that you're doing. Those kids, from a verbal standpoint, learning, especially if they're very young, they learn by mimicking mimicking what they see and then mimicking it and feeling themselves do it. No one who supported children's masking thought we would be doing this in 2023. Obviously, people who supported it were always wrong, but even they knew their indefinite masking was crazy. So a lot of us, we just feel pity for those people. But it is time for public health to reach out 
to those misguided families and stop this insanity of doing this. Because, I mean, kids have enough enough to be worried about. They have an, enough challenges right now that they don't need all of this. They, they, just, they just don't need what's being done to them now. Now, having said that, something you may not be aware of is that you, we all know that it is not good for kids. Well, excuse me. This, I'm, I'm going to say this without trying to be offended. I think every parent of a child, if they're being honest with themselves, believes that it would be better for that kid to have a two-parent home. Now, I realize conditions don't always work out that way. A number of things. There's a, a thousand factors that make it so that people can't. But the secular, this is from a column over at TheMessenger.com. The secular side of Christmas is a special family time. Tomorrow morning with three kids, a grandkid, a couple of dear friends, three dogs, Christmas music in the air. We'll have breakfast, open presents, cheerfully celebrate. Obviously, this was written the day before Christmas. Yet perhaps due to aging, I'm more bothered realizing that so many Americans, especially kids, are less blessed, especially kids. Last year, the number of kids living in poverty more than doubled to 12.4%. This is in America. Uh, from an historic low the year before, that child poverty soared to one in eight Americans, principally reflects Congress's decision to end the pandemic relief programs, especially the expanded tax credit. Now, I'm not saying I agree with this column. I agree with part of this column, but not all of it. In a wealthy country, that's just unacceptable. Dr. Melissa Kearney, an economist specializing in families, says that ending the expanded child tax credit was a big policy mistake. The more generous credit had lifted an estimated 3.7 million children out of poverty. Why? Via government assistance. The University of Maryland scholar says the problem is deeper with a continuing increase in families with only one parent. That's the theme of her book, Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Her book was published to generally favorable reviews this year, though it's an old story. Daniel Patrick Moynihan examined the issue in a controversial study 60 years ago, and it's gotten much worse. Here's a little fact for you. 88% of Asian ch children, kids today, live in married parent families. That's the high mark. That is the high watermark in American culture today. 77% of white kids live in a two-parent home. 62% of Hispanics but only 38% of black kids. For whites, blacks, and Hispanics, those are big drops from a decade or so ago. Overall, one in three kids do not live in a two-parent home. When you compile the data showing that on average, children with only one parent are less likely to succeed academically, they are less likely to go to college, they are less likely to be economically successful. Not surprisingly, the author that wrote that got pushback from a lot of progressive lefties who view that as a distraction from advocating for more assistance programs. In other words, we should be, instead of looking at that, we should be saying, hey, we just need to give more government money to these kids. We need to give more government money. This is You're distracting people from, from giving more money. We should just be giving more money. And from some feminists who contend it undervalues the role of single moms. So feminists are upset about this reality by saying, oh, you're undermining women in some way. Unlike Moynihan, Kearney says she didn't get a lot of blowback from blacks. The criticism she did get generally misses the mark. As Kearney notes, an important, an important means to restoring two-parent families is to lift the income standard for living of living for poor America, who comprise a disproportionate share of single-family homes. There are single mothers who've done an extraordinary job. 
Two products are former President Barack Obama, with help from his grandparents, and Maryland Governor Wes Moore, who was a Rhodes Scholar. 30 years ago, Alex Kotlowitz's book, There Are No Children Here, vividly captured the courage and determination of some single mothers. But as Kearney's and other, the author that I'm referring to in this piece, the data clearly shows that kids living with two parents do much better than a child raised by a single parent, educationally and ultimately financially. That applies to a traditional man and wife, a couple together outside of marriage and gay couples. If any of these relationships really sour, it's better to move on. Kearney notes, America has the highest percentage of single-parent families in the world. Conservatives often cite general welfare programs as disincentives to marriage. The author says her research doesn't show that. I'm convinced, they say, by the evidence that women are not single mothers because of general government assistance. Two other causes thrown about, divorce and teen pregnancy, are also false. The divorce rate in America has, with an occasional bump, been in decline for decades. Likewise, teen pregnancy, with effective public and private initiatives, has been in decline for more than 30 years. One clear problem is a shortage of marriageable men. They note about acknowledging that the problem is longstanding and the solution elusive. She recycles some suggestions that more training, skill development, treatment for substance abuse, mental health challenges, more investment in community college. Those are talking points. There's no chance that this will be joined at the presidential contest next year's between Trump and Biden, but others need to start a conversation. Obama gave an eloquent Father's Day speech, assailing absentee black fathers, but there never was much follow-through during his presidency. It's not on President Biden's agenda. Most of the self-styled family values Republicans offer a little more than demagoguery. Political leaders make a huge mistake in either criticizing or ignoring the warning about the crisis in the black family. Back then, 26% of black families were headed by a single parent. Today, it's more. It's two and a half times more. Whereas less than 5% of white families were headed by a single parent in 1965. Now it's four times that. The issue we have before us is significant. It is stark. And again, there are plenty of warning signs that say America could be and probably is in serious decline from a cultural standpoint. Single families, single parent. And again, there are some magnificent single parents out there. That doesn't mean it's a desirable place to be. And it's, an, it's, it, it's a taxing event on that single parent. It's difficult and taxing, and it takes a tremendous toll. Little known fact, my sister, who is a couple years my junior, she's been a music researcher. Yes, there, there is such a thing, and she works for a company that determines music that, that is best suited for a given station format. And so she, she's, she's horrific. Do never play name that tune with her. It's, it's, a, it's a horrific endeavor. She'll just crush you. She's even better in most instances than Shazam, you know, the, the music listening app where to listen to a song and identify it. And she's, she codes music so she can listen to a song and tell you the coding genre that it belongs into. And I try to throw obscure things at her that, that split genres and stuff. She still nails it every time. So I, I used to get her and say, hey, give me some cutting-edge stuff that's going to be bigger. You know, and she and she and her husband are both music aficionados, and they would give me, and I would load it up with really cool bumper music. That's stuff that people hadn't heard of. And then when they would hear, they would call the station, say, where did you get that? Where did I get that? Where did I get that? Fun, fun. So, again, classy stuff. The staff here at WBT always doing a fantastic job with that. I got a lot of material. I don't know how I'm going to get to it all, but I'm going to try to get through it as we plow ahead. I've still got to get to the why did ancient man have four and a half fingers on each hand, stuff of that nature. But I do want to get the first piece, and I'm going to try to get to it before the bottom of the hour here, is from Carol Swain. Now, Carol Swain is a former political science professor at Vanderbilt University. You may have seen her before. They've interviewed her quite a bit. She's very conservative. Well, I'd say she's conservative. 
She's very straightforward. She's a political science professor. She is one of the academics who Claudine Gay, president of Harvard, plagiarized. Swain has called for Gay's firing as a return to sanity by Harvard University. But she is she has written a piece talking about you know where this is all going, and we see here DEI, diversity inclusion stuff like the equity inclusion. And this is her opinion, and I think it's it's stellar because it's talking. It's a great lesson for anybody out there, either if you are someone looking to start your life out or someone who's trying to get information to your kids, the message to convey to them about success. She said a few months ago she was invited to apply for a visiting professorship at a university out west. As part of that application, she had to submit a mandatory diversity, equity, inclusion statement. Now, she is a mentor. She's black. She said it was difficult to write because she said she believed that all DEI programs should be abolished and that we can achieve diversity without discrimination. She argued in, in, in a book she wrote called The Adversity of Diversity, DEI programs are divisive. And many, if not all of them, are violate our civil laws, our civil rights laws, as well as the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Therefore, she argues that diversity programs should share the same fate as race-based college admissions, which the Supreme Court struck down as unconstitutional. She said, I'm fervently committed to advancing diversity, equal opportunity, not equity and inclusion, resulting in a policy that can promote true integration and respect of individuals in American institutions and society. True diversity, she says, comes through the practice of non-discrimination, outreach, and compliance with the Protection Clause, Equal Protection Clause. Honoring the First Amendment freedoms of speech and religion can and should result in diversity of thought and goodwill amongst diverse groups of people. Institutions can and should abide by the First Amendment. Institutional leaders should encourage and promote the simple but enduring tenets of the golden rule. Treat others how you would like for them to treat you. That approach, approach does work. I speak as a person who started in life with poverty, dropped out of a middle school, married at age 16, had three kids before I turned 21, and yet found success, she writes. The 1964 Civil Rights Act pro prohibited discrimination on account of race, color, national origin, sex, and religion. Its passage opened the doors for many. It created a merit-based system. Merit-based system. She said she had the good benefit, to, uh, the good fortune to benefit from the possibility for the recruitment of talented minorities. I believe there still should be true. We should continue to recruit talented people from diverse groups. That includes poor whites. It includes Asians. We can have integrated workplaces and campuses if we be create if we're creative. Treating equal everyone equal under the law should be a given. Recruiting talented individuals and helping where needed on an equal basis is where our nation should be. She says, I strongly believe that this alternative approach to diversifying institutions is counter to what America stands for. It should work because of what we know about human nature. And I dare say what I per personally witnessed. I have the good fortune of having experienced America from the vantage point of all different social classes and belief systems. I would like young people to know what I've come to realize, that in this country, where you start your life does not determine where you end up. You can start out with every advantage and waste all of it. How many people have you seen that? Had every advantage in the world and wasted all of it. Or you can start out with nothing and become a great success. It all depends on you. Your attitude is far more important than your race. It's more important than your gender. It's more important than your social class. It's your, your attitude moving through life is more important than anything with respect to where you're going to end up in it. That's the kind of interesting thing.
And that's what she writes. She is she is a a a beacon of hope for many, because that is true. I don't care where you come. What you're, I mean, people want to say that I, I can't get ahead because of whatever. There there are people of all races, colors, creeds, sexual orientations that want to they want to live their life in that excuse. And the truth, I mean, think about that. All of those people coming across that southern border right now. That's not what they – now, they may believe they're going to get on some kind of subsistence program, but that's not – many of them want to be better than that. They certainly don't believe that not even being able to speak English is going to hold them back. Don't you wish – I mean, that would be my wish for the new year, is don't you wish that that the people today, the instead of having Antifa burn cities to the ground or the BLM movement or whatever, find excuses – is to just say, you know what? I'm going to be the best whatever I can be. Whatever I choose to be, I want to be the best at it. I want to be, or at least try to be the best, or at least be good at it. Don't, wouldn't it be amazing if every you know, 16 to 25-year-old you knew had that attitude? I don't care what, what I am, man, woman, whatever color of skin, and they said, you know, I just want to be the best. I'm going to, I'm going to learn. I'm going to study. I'm going to work at it. I'm going to be better than I am now. My biggest regret, one of my biggest regrets of being young is stop, stop piano. Stopped it too young. Enjoyed playing a few songs by ear instead of perfecting that. And I look at the people like Condoleezza Rice who are concert-level pianists, and I'm just amazed by it. How do we get – just, there's just no way I get to it all before the end of the show, but I'm exa- I, I guess I'll have some fun with it on the way there. And, and I will get to the, the – uh, <laughs> I will get to the, the prehistoric man having – Fewer fingers, and it's an indictment. It really is an indictment on modern man. When I read you this story, I tell you what, I'm, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and go down this path. So they they've been looking at prehistoric handprints, and they're like, why why are so many? When they look at like cave art from all over the world, it shows that 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 we humans at that time were kind of missing. Men and women might have had this. Is from the Guardian. UK publication, but it's it, it's very popular in the US too. Men and women m- might have had their fingers deliberately chopped off during religious rituals in prehistoric times, according to a new interpretation of Paleolithic cave art. In a paper presented at a recent meeting of the European Society for Human Evolution, uh, researchers pointed to 25,000-year-old paintings in France and Spain that depict silhouettes of hands. On more than 200 of those, the hands lack at least one digit. In some cases, only a single upper segment is missing. In others, several fingers gone. In the past, this absence of digits was attributed to artistic license by the cave painting creators or to ancient people's real-life medical problems, including frostbite. Yeah, it was a thing, wasn't it? It's amazing. Why would people live where they're losing stuff like that every year? But scientists led by archaeologist Professor Mark Collard of Simon Fraser University in Vancouver says the truth may be far more gruesome. There is compelling evidence that these people may have had their fingers amputated deliberately in rituals intended to elicit help from supernatural entities. Nor was the habit unique to one time or place. Quite a few societies encourage fingers to be cut off today and have done so throughout history. Wasn't that like the, the mob, you know, would cut off a finger or the cartels? Get your hand in the, in the tell, take a finger off. Collard cited the Danny people from the New Guinea Highlands. Women there sometimes have one or more fingers cut off following the death of a loved one, including sons or daughters. We believe that Europeans were doing the same thing back then. This is a practice that was not necessarily routine, but has occurred several times in history. You have to wonder. Now, now, here's where I'm going to try to tie a little bit of this together. Because we haven't really changed. Men and women without fully functioning hands are unable to cope with the harsh condition that prevailed then or now. It's tough. 
In a paper presented at the European Society Conference, they said their latest research provided more evidence that the removal of digits appease deities explains. So the I guess it was a, a pagan thing. Here's the thing. You think, okay, we've evolved since then. You would think, you know, especially from a Christendom standpoint, but look at all the people that fell for the masking stuff. Look at all the people. We fall for things that that I think that binds people together in a weird belief system with respect to removing. So they're saying, okay, this happened. You need to cut your finger off. And somehow that made sense to people. It's kind of like, you know, the, the hanging of witches in Salem, 1609 or so. So there was this weird thing. It spread like wildfire. And all of a sudden it was a, it was a trendy thing to do. Try them, hang them, you're done. And then it was like a virus. It ended. It it's almost leads you to believe there was a viral component to the hanging of witches in Salem. But these things, you know, that, that we humans do, human sacrifice, that's one of the things about Christendom that, that's so amazingly appealing is if you ascribe to the Christian faith, the New Testament is the end of all types of blood sacrifice. There is no more testing of of humans and blood sacrifices required you know what the job on the mountain taught take the lamb instead i'm not trying to get into biblical scripture too much here if you study it you study it and it, it, it will change you if you study it enough but th- that ended with in christendom that ended with the death of jesus that was the fine that was the no more blood sacrifices no more this neolithic stuff no more cutting off of fingers no more uh disfiguring yourself for, for pagan rituals, it was it. That was that, That's a beautiful belief system. Someone else died for you. You don't need to do all the silly stuff. But it is it is fascinating that we, we see where humans have strange practices, and then we bring that, and then you look at modern life. It's not hard to believe this because we see some of the stuff people believe now. You see some of the stuff that becomes trendy and hip and cool, and, and you think, well, when, when did that become trendy, hip, and cool? And why is it? It's not really trendy, hip, and cool. In about 30 years... In about 20 years, probably, I think a lot of people that did trendy, cool, hip things are going to look at their bodies and say, why did I do that? Why did I disfigure my body this way? But they do. And I think that, that the transgender movement right now, which is a very small, and the things that they're, I think that they're going to be people that did this to kids, and a lot of those people cannot reverse that. And it's going to be severely detrimental. And I think that a time will come when humans will look back at this period and go, why were they disfiguring their kids? The way we look at cavemen with four and a half fingers. We're, we realize, why did they do that? And we will wonder. I mean, a lot of us wonder it now. But I think certainly anyone that looks back on this period of time and say, why were they disfiguring children? It will never make sense. It will never be something that makes sense. And you'll have to wonder about the mental state of the parents who push that. On their kids. All right. Do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay. So what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at carolinareadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even, because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? Now, this last piece, 
I, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, it's there's a level of complexity to it that there's no way I can discern into I'll not, I'm not, not going to go through the whole piece, but I am going to go through some of the seminal parts of it because it's worth it. It's it's kind of a book review. There's a, a new book out. It's a phenomenal. It's called The New Leviathan's Thoughts After Liberalism by John Gray. It's 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 not very long. It's about 192 pages, but but it's worth the read. I think just as Alexis Tocqueville, you know, uh, Democracy in America and Adam Smith, these seminal works. This is, I think, a seminal work about looking at who we are and where we are in this country. His name's John Gray, the author, and, and the reviewer writes, it's difficult to place him on a political spectrum. Somehow, sometimes he sounds like a student revolutionary and others like the chief leader writer of the Daily Telegraph. His main effect, at any rate, is to puncture the complacency of those who believe they have a doctrine that will answer all of life's problems, from personal to political, from social to economic. Chief among these is the in the West is the doctrine of liberal democracy, which seemed to have triumphed so comprehensively with the fall of the Berlin Wall, but now, just 34 years later, is in retreat. And we see that here. And, and again, what I found fascinating about it is, I'm going to try to get to some of this, and it says uh, that man desires to be free, whether that desire is inborn or the product of circumstances, beside the point, at least in the West, but he also, and again, I say he because that's the way writing generally flowed, forever until recently, but mankind also desires to belong, for it is only by belonging that we achieve some kind of transcendent purpose or find some transcendent meaning, not words we often use in talk radio, that the old group identities, religion, state, nation, class have withered in the West under the relentless assault of supposedly rational criticism, but since groups, groups' identity is an imperative, need new, more egotistical identities, highly balkanized, have taken their place. So we saw that even with race, we thought we were getting better race. And because we're getting better, those groups desperately want us not to get along. So they become more balkanized and it becomes more anti-freedom than freedom. Or even it's, it's kind of lost its mission, hasn't All these groups become so entrenched that they can't even have a civil discourse anymore. It's about being the opposite of whatever someone else says. But back to it. I think this is interesting. Um, Christianity once promised a better, indeed perfect life in the hereafter, but once belief in the truth in its historical claims and doctrines began to waver, and we saw this in society, right? The Kind of the rejection. Hopes for perfection moved from heaven to earth. In other words, we believed in something bigger than ourselves, and now we just look here. A lot of people do. Liberalism promised, if not perfection, at least constant progress toward it. But by also promising equality, not in the eyes of God, but here on earth, it opened the way to endless squabbles about what that equality means and to resentment from group to group when it wasn't achieved. In other words, when we all believed in God, there's, there's an equality that is, that is looked at differently. There's a spiritual equality. But now that we turn it to earth, we, we look for equality, and when it's not achieved, we become resentful. Someone else, someone has something we don't, so we resent them. Because there isn't a hereafter, right? There isn't a God. There isn't a bigger a bigger picture. It's just now. My supposed right to equal respect is also my right to survey, censor, and suppress your thoughts and vice versa. A state of paranoia then begins to take hold. Liberalism is a doctrine of rights, but unsupported by any common cultural understanding in the population. It has become a kind of inflamed legalism in which the law must adjudicate between, for example, the right to life of the conceptus, the baby, on the one hand, and the right of the woman to decide what goes on in her own body on the other. Both rights 
for those who uphold them are absolute. There's no compromise that's possible so long as the question is couched like that, isn't it? As long as it's about the right of the baby or the right of the mom, there's no, there's no compromise, is there? The left is absolutely no. Up until nine months, that's it. There is no compromise. Where the law adjudicates more and more in that way, it is not the legislature, which can't even read all the laws. By the way, there's no legislature out there that knows all the laws that it's passing. They don't even read them most of them. Even in North Carolina, our legislature, have you read the laws? They're not reading them. They're passing them. They're voting on them. But they're not reading them. They're, they're insane. They're full of so many legalisms that we, we're creating a society in which only lawyers can exist to interpret the crazy stuff that gets passed. But the apparatchiks and the nomenclatura and a favorite class of economic actors are now the powers in the land. And this is the line that really struck me when I was going through this piece. A liberal order gives way to an administrative authoritarianism. Nowhere is that more clear than like the tax codes, which nobody understands, but it does have an administrative authorita- authoritarianism that can take, it can deprive you of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for screwing up on your taxes. Now, that's, that's a very easy one, but we saw this with, with the kind of turning the FBI and other agencies into political extensions of power. At the same time, a huge intelligentsia created by the expansion of the tertiary – this sounds really complicated – created by the expansion of tertiary education and largely autonomian in nature and surplus to the ability of economy, blah, 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 raises ideological tensions that it seeks in place uh, in the sun. Anyway, what he's trying to say is we're kind of creating a situation when you look at all this. is very deep, but again, I don't want to get into the, the minutiae of it. But countries and societies that go down this path, we saw it with – we get bogged up in bathrooms and transgenderism and tampon machines in, in bathrooms. We get bogged down with the perception of rights and, and the, the, the emotional, social learning, all of that stuff. We, we get into these things that aren't really tangible, and in so doing, we, we create a situation where we're very ripe for takeover so to speak, by our enemies. So our enemies are kind of, I mean, China doesn't have this kind of problem with them. It's not arguing about these silly things. And so when we start determining these things are important, we start arguing with ourselves. And so any other country that looks at that just says, this is great. Let them tear themselves apart. And the more that we can kind of push that, if, if I were in, in China or North Korea, these others, the advice I would give them is keep pushing those buttons, keep pushing those groups farther apart. If any stronger or more determined country remain in the field that are not yet rotted by liberalism. So those countries that are not rotted by liberalism are in a great place to take over a country that gets obsessed with it, that gets tied up in it. Because once you're tied up in that kind of liberalism, you don't really have an avenue forward for your society. Because ultimately, there is life itself is unequal. Life itself is not about equity. There's nothing in life that's really equitable. It's certainly not when it comes to childhood cancers. That's not an equitable situation. Certainly not equitable when when children or spouses are taken in accidents or other horrific things. It's not. There's no equity in that. It's a silly pursuit, and you never will achieve it. Kristen have offered something much better than that. But this is your host, Chad Adams. I'll be back tomorrow the rest of the week. Do stay tuned. As always, WBT has been an absolute pleasure. Here, as always, at News Talk 1110-993. We'll be back bright and early tomorrow. Stay tuned.